Good morning. Here we go. We're going to do Matthew 6, 8 through 13. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Oh. Hey, how's it going? There's a, yes, there's a stray S over there. <laughs> I saw it last time, and I was like, I'm going to fix that during the break. Here we are. I didn't do it. Um, it'll be there at the end, too. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're going to do it again. Everyone stand up. All right. Okay. So now you know what you're doing. Don't worry, we're not, this is not like the new thing we're doing every week. Although, what if it was? <laughs> I have a professor that does that every time you get together for class. He's like, we're going to say the Shema. And it ends with, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer. I think it's like he doesn't like the awkwardness. Like he wants people to laugh at his jokes and stuff. So he does this to get everyone to break the ice. So it's less of a prayer, more of an icebreaker. <laughs> Just joking. Um, okay, so you're going to repeat after me. And then we're going to say this like with feeling, right? Like you know how to do this now. We talked about this last week. And those of you who weren't here, you listened on the podcast. So we're all caught up. <laughs> Repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Elachad. Adonai Elachad. All right. Here we go. Ready together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay. So there's this cave in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, uh, near the Dead Sea. Um, it looks like this, literally, because that's a picture of it. And it's called the Qumran Cave. And in this cave, in the mid-40s, 1946 or so, um, there was a Bedouin shepherd boy walking his sheep like down there around the corner, his goats or whatever, and one of them disappeared, and he couldn't find his goat, and he saw the cave, and he thought to himself, he's way down on the ground, he thought to himself, maybe my goat went in the cave, because it's a hot day. So he picked up, this all happened, okay? So he picks up this rock, and he throws it into the goat, think, uh, into the goat, into the, <laughs> into the cave, thinking maybe I'll hit the goat, it'll scare, or maybe I'll just scare the goat, and it'll run out. Um... And he hears like this pottery shatter when he throws it in, okay, 1946, very recently. Um, and he climbs up into the cave to see, what was that noise that shouldn't have just happened? And he goes into the cave and he finds tons and tons of clay pots uh, with scrolls in them, lots of scrolls, ancient, very, very old scrolls. These scrolls have been responsible for... Um, broadening our understanding of the scriptures over the last 50, 70 years in amazing ways. Um, did you ever notice, most of you won't because you're young, but for a lot of you who are older, did you ever notice that in the 80s there came to be a lot more new translations of the Bible? Yeah, Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, revealed a lot of information to us. One thing it also gave us is this book called the Didache. I have one right here. I got it for like five bucks on Amazon. People used to have to like um, risk their lives just to get a copy of this thing and hide it and spend it. I was like, prime only. <laughs> Buy now. Five dollars. Uh, because of what we found in the cave, we have this book and we know that it's dated to the first century around the time of the apostles. Literally the apostles. Like could have, they, they probably read it 
may have even had a hand in writing it. Who knows? But it's an early church manual. Um, this one's got Greek and English in it. Um, so, like, it's really only half the size of that you see here. Very small. Um, and it's called the Didache. Now, the Didache is an early church manual on how to, like, live as a disciple of Jesus, how to live as a Christian. There's rules in there for um, how to govern church and, and baptisms and all kinds of things. And in this, there is a specific passage of interest today, to today's passage. Um, it's in chapter 8, dedicate chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 3, which is literally the whole chapter, three verses. I don't even know why they had to go through and separate them into chapters. Um, okay, so, but it starts off in verse 1. It says, let not your fasts be with, with the hypocrites, uh, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. But do you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays? It, it speaks weird and whatever. But it, uh, it basically says, here's the days the hypocrites fast. Um, so let's not fast those days. Let's fast these days. It's kind of like, let's not go to that Denny's because so-and-so is going to be there. Let's go to the other Denny's. Um, and, uh, and then verse 2, it says, and, and this all kind of sounds familiar because they're sort of repeating the words, of te- words and teachings of Jesus. And it says in verse 2, and do not pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospels, pray thus, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so also upon earth. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into trial, but deliver us from evil, uh, from the evil one, for thine is the power and the glory forever. And then in verse 3, it says simply, pray thus three times a day. So the Lord's Prayer, um, for the Gentile Christians, the Jewish Christians had the Shema, the thing we just prayed, and Jesus amends the Shema and adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to talk about that when we get there later on. But um, the Gentile Christians are given something specific for them. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And they are told, like, like the Jewish Christians pray, pray the Shema three times a day, the, the Gentile Christians are going to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. This is what we're going to talk about today, is the Lord's Prayer. Um, we know because of these kinds of things, like the Didache, because of a lot of ancient writings that we have from the early church, this prayer was incredibly important to the early church, um, and it needs to be studied, it needs to be understood. We're going to spend a couple weeks here. This week we're going to talk about the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Um, in two weeks we're going to talk about the second half. Next week I'm going to talk about baptism, because we have a baptism service coming up. Um, so if you're here and, uh, and you are reforming your life and you need a new start, um, you need to make things um, new again, you need to celebrate some resurrection, um, we as a church would like to give you the gift of baptism. It's a new start. Put that person um, away forever and bring this new person out, and we want to commit to walking with you in this new path of Jesus. So if you want to be baptized, um, visit the website or the city um, and, and just look for all the information there and respond to that. Um, okay, so let's start, shall we? We're going to start right here. Um, in Matthew 6, verse 8, it says, Do not be like them. It's talking about the people that he uh, talked about earlier, those people who blow a horn and then give a bunch of money in, uh, in the offering plate, and those same people that, when they stand up to pray, give these elaborate speeches to get applause from people, and it's to be seen. And then he mentions the Gentile pagan worship, how they're just vain babbling and going into trances. And, and um, he says, no, there's a way you should pray. And here's what it is. He says, um, he says, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Thus, then, uh, this, I'm sorry, this then is how you should pray. Now, uh, if you're like me, then a lot of times in your life, and it's been a constant battle your whole life, you struggled with prayer, with the idea of prayer. 
I'm not any kind of prayer warrior. I never have been. I envy those people. My wife is very good at prayer. It's a regular thing that she does. Um, for me, it's always been like a trudging, a, a, a lot of work, this um, making time to do something I know I need to do. Um, and then you sit down, and um, maybe you've prayed this before. You sit down, and you're like, God, it's me again. And I don't really know what to say, but I know I need to do this, right? Like, maybe you've prayed that. Um, or just like, Father, you know what I'm supposed to pray, and just, just tell me what it is, right? Um, or I don't even know how to ask for things. And there's always been this constant battle in my life for prayer. If you're like me, that's your struggle. And a lot of you who are not, um, we need your example. We need you to speak to each other and, and lead us um, and guide us towards prayer. But today we're going to talk about what the Lord's Prayer is, because Jesus literally says, this then is how you should pray. So if you've wondered how you should pray, Jesus is about to say like, oh, here's how you should do it. And he, it's a teaching. And it's broken up into sort of um, two sections. And what Jesus gives us is a framework, a framework that, that you can work your way through. And it doesn't have to be all the same words. As a matter of fact, there's other places in scriptures where this verse is prayed and different words are used, but it's the exact same framework, same ideas. In the Didache, um, different words were used, um, but there's a framework. And if there's something specific, you can insert it there. But there's a framework that you are given to work in um, to help you um, understand what the point of prayer is. And so it starts off, it's in two sections, and each section has um, underneath it um, two sets of three. Um, so section one, and then there's three points, and then section two, and then there's three points. Um, when we read books today, we tend to have a framework of reading books that's like, um, what do they call it? There's like, there's like the plot, and there's a narrative, and then there's like a climax, and there's like a conclusion. So when we read stories, we're looking at this particular way of reading stories, and we tend to bring that to the Gospels. In the first century, um, their brain was wired to read books um, and look for patterns. So if you ever read the book of Mark, um, and you really pay attention, you read a book maybe about the book of Mark, you're going to see patterns of threes all through the whole book. Um, you're going to see Jesus doing miracles in groups of three. You're going to see stories um, that have three parts to each story. You're going to see three parts in the beginning, three parts in the end of the entire book. And then the whole book is separated into threes. As you're reading this in the ancient world, you're going to say, wow, he really wants us to think about that number. And you're going to maybe think back over scriptures and you're going to remember characters um, that maybe he's connecting this passage to, like maybe Jonah and the belly of a whale for three days comes out and preaches the message of God and everyone repents, stuff like that, okay? So there was a lot more to reading in the ancient world, and the people would have seen patterns in the scriptures uh, when they were reading these things. I'm not talking about any kind of weird codes or nothing like that. That stuff's stupid. Um, scholarly first century understanding of, uh, of the scriptures. Um, so, hold on, I'll get back up my notes. I've already done this today. Um, so it starts off putting God in God's proper place. Uh, let in the name of God be hallowed, let his kingdom spread to our world, let his will be done. The whole idea at the beginning of the prayer is to give God God's proper place. And when you give God God's proper place, it has a lot of times it kind of looks like, like, a, like an audit of your day, right? Like you're going to, an audit, audit of like recent chronology. Um, in other words, the last few days, the last few hours or days or weeks or months or years, um, what has been the motivation for your life? What is it that you have been seeking and living for? What is it that you have been striving after? Whatever those things are, that is your Lord. 
And in prayer, we put God back on the throne at the beginning. Um, We put God in God's proper place. Because a big problem with prayer today is that a lot of people, you know, they open up prayer with, here's all the things that I would like to see happen. Okay. In other words, our sense of God's proper place tends to be below us, serving us like some kind of Santa Claus whom we're making a list for. That is not God's proper place. God has a proper place in our lives. It is the center of all of it. Every decision that we make, we, we go to passages like the Sermon on the Mountain, and we read and we get an understanding of uh, the mind and heart of Christ. And when we think of God, we think of Jesus, his entire life, death, burial, resurrection, his teaching, all of it. Um, and we put God in God's proper place. Um, and so it does not start, prayer does not start with bending God's will to your will. It starts with admitting your will, but then putting God in God's place and pushing all that stuff aside and trying to get in the mindset where God's will becomes your will. It's a replacement of all of this. Um, And then second, um, it's, it's an exercise because honestly, God gets buried in your life. He gets buried. You come here this morning and every week, maybe, uh, however often you come, and, and, and I try to fill you up and give you things, and we're, we're going to try to put God back in the proper setting and focus at the, at the very front of our hearts and lives, at the center of our being. Um, and then you're going to move into your week, and maybe you're going to do a little scripture reading and some study, and you're going to read books. You're going to read the scriptures. You're going to read books about the scriptures or whatever, and maybe you're going to gather in a house church. But every other moment of the day, the world is burying God in your life. It is, a, it is a concerted effort to tell you, here's what you should be like, here's what you should look like, um, here's how you should dress, here's the kind of thing you should be into, your music styles, your clothing tastes, um, here's what your life should, be look, should, should look like. Um, mothers, here's how you should punish your kids, and here's how you should train your kids, and, and, um, and mothers, here, you should work, uh, you know, you should, you should have... You should be like super mom and at the same time like have a career because, right, feminine. Uh, and, and like all of it, like you're being told, all of us at every moment are being told what you should do at every given moment of your day. And they're burying God because you already have a way of figuring out what you're doing here and the center of your being. And it's not the blogger. It's not the book. It's not the guy that yells at you at the gym. It's Christ. It's a first century Middle Eastern rabbi that lived in a small town called Nazareth. And we're going to listen to that guy. We're going to listen to his voice. Um, so it starts off with, okay, here's what the world is telling me. I'm going to push all that aside. What, what is the will of God? Um, and then it moves into three things. It, it talks about our needs and necessities from there. So once God's in his place, then we kind of can, we understand our place and we can put ourselves in our place. And then you're going to do um, three particular exercises. You're going to talk about your daily bread, which is your, um, your basically your current necessities, the things that right at this moment you want. You're not praying for riches or for a 401k or all of that. You're, it's right now. Here's what's going on right now. And you're going to bring that to this um, God on the throne. You're going to bring that. And then forgiveness of sins is about the past. It's about the things that you're carrying. Um, it's about the things that you've done, the ways that you've hurt people, the way that it's damaged your reputation or the way that it's damaged your soul or your heart. You're carrying a lot of guilt. You've done some things you shouldn't have done. And you're carrying that and there's this shame involved in that. And then, so you're going to bring that to God. 
Um, and all of this hinges on having a right understanding of the beginning. So this morning we're going to talk about the beginning of this whole thing. Um, and then the rest of it is about avoiding temptation. There's a path you want to walk on. How do I maintain this? How do I stay on this path? So another pattern the early reader is going to see is you're going to see um, in the group of three, you're going to see now and you're going to see your present, you're going to see your past, and you're going to see your future. All come together in this response to this is who God is and here's all of me, past, present, future, responding to who God is, okay? Um, William Barclay puts it very simply, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to bring the whole of life to the whole of God and then to bring the whole of God to the whole of life. It is a response, okay? Um, So why don't we uh, work our way through this? We're going to start at the very beginning. I'm going to underline the parts. Um, We're just going to cover the first part today. I think it's just verse um, 9 and 10, and we are going to... um, I'm going to underline everything that I'm talking about at the moment. Okay, so this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So I'm going to focus on the Father part in a second, because remember, this prayer was for first century Gentiles. First century Gentiles lived in a world of the pantheon of gods. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods, each one of them demanding some kind of sacrifice, each one of them um, angry about something that, that mankind has done um, and needing to be appeased so that they will send rain, um, so that they will make crops grow, so that they will keep away tornadoes and lightning and wildfires and animal attacks and all kinds of stuff and sickness and disease. Um, it, was all, it was all a sp- very, very spiritual world. Um, and gods were the ones that controlled all these things. And so all these gods were always angry at you and you needed to appease them. So you needed to spill some blood, offer some sacrifices, and you never knew how much to give. So every time something bad happens, you offer more sacrifices. But then when something good happens, you can't offer the same amount of sacrifices. You need to offer more. So you're going to offer more. Um, and then next time, though, it comes time to offer sacrifices. You can't offer the same amount. You need to offer more. So these gods are never appeased. There's always more to offer. This is important to you because I don't think you realize you and I live underneath also a pantheon of gods. Not in the same sense and mindset that they did. But you and I live in a world where, again, everyone is telling you what every aspect of your life should look like. Um, I mean, my, my wife was like, Flipping through something the other day, and this article went by two articles back to back. One of them was like, why I give my kids an iPad at, at, at a restaurant. And the other one was like, to the mom who gives her child an iPad at a restaurant. <laughs> the gods are fighting. <laughs> brutal war of the mommy blogger gods. Um, you have to appease them, right? They're, are you going to feed your kids goldfish or gold bunnies? What is it going to be? That's a mom joke. Some of you get it. Um, One's organic. It doesn't matter. Um, so where am I? Okay. I'm preaching the gospel. Um, <laughs> this pantheon of gods is, never stops making demands of you. Ever. And so Jesus, the prayer that he gives you, it starts off, um, our Father. You're not giving this pantheon of gods. You're given a Father. And that's a pretty big deal because... A father doesn't need to be appeased, right? A father doesn't need to be appeased. A father has love for his child simply because he brought that child into the world. It's, the game is already set. There is love. Um, 
You exist. You were created. In some sense, um, God is obviously on your side because the chance that you should exist, I don't know if you understand the mathematics behind that. You should not statistically exist. You and I, here we are. This is a gift, this whole thing, this life, breath, all of it. Statistically, this should not be, but here we are. So in some sense, like the thing is already rigged in your favor. Um, When a child is born, um, he is born into a world um, where food is just going to be given to him, a fresh, clean bed and clothing and comfort. It's all just given and there's nothing to be done just by existing. It is received. And so everything is already set up for you to understand in this prayer for the Gentile under all the gods like you, like me, um, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. It's all been done. Just receive. And this is a huge deal. Um, This is a huge deal to these ancient people. Fathers love because they are fathers, because they have given life. They don't need to be appeased. They don't demand constant moral behavior uh, in order to care and give love to you. I understand my kids are going to screw up and do stupid things. It doesn't mean I'm withholding my love when they do. It's the simplest thing in the world to understand. Um, There's this story in the ancient Roman world of this emperor who... um, goes on this, on this big war campaign with the empire, and he conquers this city. Um, and so now when this happens, the emperor gets to ride in the chariot through the city, and, and there's a parade. Or sometimes the emperor would get off and, and let the centurion who led the battle ride through the, Rome, the city of Rome and receive sort of the glory of the emperor in that moment. But in this story, as the story goes, the emperor is riding in his chariot, and they've conquered a new land, so Rome has spread, the, the, the gospel of Rome, the good news of the kingdom spread by the sword, right? And so he's traveling through the city, and all the people are gathered, and they're cheering, and there's a parade, and there's, everyone's moving through the city. This is an ancient sort of relief of that. It's called, a, it's called the, uh, the Rome, it's uh, Victory Processional, something like that. Um, and there's, uh, he gets to near the palace, and there's a platform, and there's uh, the emperor's wife and the emperor's son on the platform. The son is about four years old, and the son sees the chariot coming down the road, and he sees, he sees the chariot, and he sees who's in the chariot, and the son, the four-year-old, climbs down off the platform, and he goes running, and he squeezes through all the legs of the people, and he runs out, and he sees his father now coming along the street, and he starts running towards the chariot, and a centurion grabs the boy, picks him up, and says, son, you can't. You can't approach the emperor. Do you know who this is? This is the emperor of all of Rome. This is the most powerful man in the whole world. He can, he can put to death um, a thousand, ten thousand people by the wave of his hand. He's, he's the all-powerful son of God. That's what they used to call him. You cannot approach this man. And the boy looks at the centurion and goes, maybe to you, but that's my father. I can approach my father any time of the day, anytime I want. And my father wants to see me. That is the idea. In the first century, um, the word that is used here, Abba, is like the word for a child speaking about his father. For Jesus to use this language in the first century um, is personalizing a deity unlike anyone has ever personalized a deity. This is a huge deal. This is how your prayer starts. It starts with understanding um, there is nothing to be done and you can feel free to approach. Um, There is no 
work to be done. There is no appeasing to be done. As you are, know that you are accepted and loved and welcome to the throne. As a father welcomes a child, any moment of the day, any time. The weight that is lifted off of these people, these Gentiles in the first century upon hearing how to pray, um, would have been life-changing. The fact that they could wake up in the morning and know that they were okay with the creator of all things. Um, let's look at the, uh, the next part here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So hallowed is this word hagiosestai, everyone. Hagiosestai, very good, okay. So hagios, we've talked about this word, it's the word for holy, it's the word we translate all through the New Testament as holy. Holy, we like to think of holiness as like somebody wearing all white and like nose up in the air and like, no, I never sin, I never lust, I never think about anything bad, I love everyone, everyone's good, but I'm over here. Um, That's actually like, that's a distortion of the idea of holiness. Holy simply means different, separate, but but it carries a lot of weight. It means different or it means separate. The temple, whenever they would talk about the temple, they would talk about the holy temple. The temple was holy. Why? Uh, Because it was different than all other buildings. The building itself that was the temple, it was different. The things that you did in that building, you did not do in any other building. And the things that you did in other buildings, you would never do in that building. That building is for specific things. It is separate. Uh, It can't be, it's not, it's... The other day I was like driving and I saw a Benihana. This was not in Tampa. I saw a Benihana that was obviously previously an IHOP. <laughs> Blue tall roof. And it's like, you know, you know this feeling like this building can become something else. Like this Pizza Hut will be a used car dealership and you see them, right? <laughs> They're everywhere. That used to be Pizza Hut. Yep, did. Um, again, I keep doing this. Okay, so... Um, something that is separate. The, the temple is holy. It's separate. It's different. The Sabbath is holy. It's to be kept separate. On the Sabbath, um, you, it, it's a day not like other days. You do things that you, that you don't do on other days. Um, this should be a regular, by the way, a regular occurrence in your life. You take a day, you spend that day doing things that you do not do on other days. You're not working, you're sleeping in a little bit, you're staying in your pajamas a little longer, or you're resting, or you're just, you're just doing something different. You're taking the family out, you're, you're, you're going out, you're doing something, but you're not maintaining the same rhythm of life. It's a day that is holy and separate. It's life-giving, okay? That is the idea. Hallowed be thy name. Hagiosestai. Hallowed means it's that all would know that this God is different. It's a proclamation it's an idea that everyone should know that this is not like other things because um, people are regularly speaking of Jesus um, as if he's just like every other guru or whatnot. And this is not a new phenomenon. I hear, I hear very powerful people on like one political aisle like using the name of Jesus in one particular way as if he matches their ideology. And then I hear like these super liberal gurus like, and see, and Jesus said this back then. And they're like distorting the words of Jesus to match their thing. Everyone's using the words of Jesus to match their own thing. Um, 
When Jesus has never fit into our sort of ideologies, um, he doesn't fit nicely into any parties. Um, he transcends all party lines. Even in the first century, um, Jesus was very careful to help people understand that what he's doing is not like what everyone else is doing. Um, as a matter of fact, in the first century, in, in Jesus' particular time period, um, there were all kinds of messiahs that rose up. They claimed that they were messiahs, and they said, I'm here to establish a new kingdom, a kingdom of God, and here's what it looks like. And these messiahs were always doing this. Um, and uh, so this guy, Atherongus, uh, uh he was basically a shepherd. He turned into uh, this rebel leader and, and had these disciples and decided, I'm going to establish a new kingdom. Um, and he was killed by the Romans. Um, Simon Barcoba, um, Simon Barcoba, he died in 135. Uh, um, and he basically, he founded this like short-lived Jewish state um, right before the second Jewish war. After the temple had been wiped out, he gathered a bunch of other Jews and says, we're going to start a new kingdom over here. And the Romans came in and said, no, you're not, wiped them all out. Um, and, and these people keep rising up right around the time of Jesus. All of them standing up, I'm a Messiah. There's a reason for this, okay? This is huge. Oh, by the way, there's a, there's a passage where somebody walks up to Paul and thinks he's one of these rabbis that is like a Messiah. And he walks up to him and he says this, aren't you the Egyptian who incited a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 members of the assassins into the wilderness? He's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, and keep your voice down. There's Romans right there. Um, this was everywhere. Everyone was looking for messiahs, for the messiah. Um, the reason is very simple. This was the first time in Israel's history where they had their own city. They had their own temple. They were ruled by, um, the king was a half Jew at the time. So that qualifies. It matches up with everything that uh, the prophets had written about. Um, they had uh, a functioning Levitical priestly line. Um, they had a Sanhedrin. They had synagogues. They had everything that was foretold that this time would come and the Messiah will come. And so one day they wake up after all these things fall in place and they're like, hey, are you paying attention? Because this is prime time for Messiah right now. Everyone started thinking the Messiah was going to rise. Everyone did. And no joke, people would be sitting in class in the synagogue and they'd be looking at each other, young boys looking at each other and saying, hey, you think I'm the Messiah? No, I don't. <laughs> Do you think I am? Maybe. Like, and they're all wondering, maybe I'm the Messiah. And they're all doing these huge things and, and creating these little rebellions, these little rising ups of, of the Jewish people to, to declare themselves as the Messiah. There's even a guy named Virgil um, who wrote to one of the emperors of Rome, and he said, um, the half-Jew, and he said, he said, are you the one who is to come? This is a question we see in the scriptures, people walking up to Jesus and saying, are you the one who is to come? People asked it to John the Baptist, are you the one who is to come? Everyone's looking for the Messiah because the time was set. It was time. And so Jesus enters into the scene, and Jesus doesn't stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, which is really interesting, because Jesus is doing something vastly different. Jesus knows that nobody's going to understand, because everyone's looking for a Messiah to abolish Roman occupation and to plant this, this nation, which is now going to grow, and it's going to be a, like a, an army, just like every other kingdom in the world. And Jesus is, he comes in, he's like, he's like that, is not, that is not the way God works. I'm going to show them something new. And so there's this one place where he, he casts out this demon or whatever, and, he, and he, he tells this demon, by the way, don't tell people my name. And he silences the demon. He says, because um, basically you're going to misrepresent me, is basically what he's saying. And then there's, there's another part where he, um, he, he heals all these people, and he keeps telling them, 
please be quiet about this. Just, you got your legs back, stand up and walk. Don't go telling people, okay? And they're like, okay. Hey, guys, check it out. And like, <laughs> he did this. He's a Messiah. And he's like, shh, stop it. And he's telling, he's asking all these questions, sort of teaching his disciples and kind of prodding like, so who do you think I am? Who do you think, who do they think I am? He's very interested in who people think he is. He even silences his, um, his apostles at one point, his disciples, because he's explained that he's going to die, which would mean he's not the Messiah if you die. So he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And they're like, what does that mean? He's like, I'm going to die. He's like, guys, what do you think that metaphor is? Like, it's not a metaphor. I'm going to die. None of them believed him because this is not the route of the Messiah. And so this is the fascinating thing that Jesus was doing. He's waiting until he gets to the end so he can point back and say, I'm different. I'm different. And so you will hear all kinds of people and all kinds of sects and all kinds of um, gurus and politicians using the name of Jesus to support their thing. It's not okay. Jesus is different. Um, The only reason everyone wants Jesus on their side is because they know he's different. And if they can quote Jesus and saying, see, I'm just teaching the things of Jesus, you're really not. They never are. If we're going to hear about Jesus, we're going to go to Jesus, not you. So in prayer, um, there is this hallowing of the name of Jesus. You hallow it. You set it aside. And you say, um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be that you are different. And there's all these gods all over the place telling me and commanding me how to live my life these different ways. And there's all these people taking the words of Jesus. I'm going to set you aside from all these other people. I'm going to put you at the center just for now because we all struggle. We all lose focus. Prayer is the act of pretending there's no past and no future and sort of just being present there and saying, in this moment, Jesus, you are the center. You are different. You are the authority. You are Lord. Okay? Jesus is Lord. That's what this is. Um, and then we move on to the next section here. Um, and it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Quick question. Um, how's, how's the kingdom going? How's our kingdom collectively? How's your personal kingdom? Um... How's the kingdoms all over the world? How are they doing? It's not going well. It's not going well. And and in Jesus' day, it equally was not going well. There is not a time in history where it has not been going well. Where it has not not been going well. (laughs) Right? I had to double negative. Makes it positive. Um, There's not a time in history you can look to and say, there it is. There's not. But... Jesus enters in and says, but there's another kingdom. It has nothing to do with this. By the way, the scriptures tell us every kingdom, every empire, every nation will fall. Every empire that has ever lived has fallen. Every empire that exists right now will fall. And it's it's not like a law thing. It's not a wrath thing. It's a prophetic thing. Um, It's not God coming in and knocking them over. They're built on shaky ground. They're built on shaky ground. They're, they don't get better. They kind of peak and they fall apart. It's what they do. Earthly empires. But it's okay because Jesus has declared another empire exists. Another 
um, kingdom, another community altogether exists with its own ways of living and its own ways of being and its own ways of thinking, its own culture, its own currency. It's not money. It's grace. Its own thing. Um, and and uh, empires will fall. There's this other kingdom. And the thing is, Jesus says, it comes down. I want you to think about that for a second. Because 21st century American Christianity has proclaimed that God's kingdom is found somewhere else by being swept away somewhere else. Um, That is, we're going to talk about this eventually when we get to Matthew 11. That is a 20th century um, invention of theology um, that misses the entire point of the gospel. The kingdom of God comes here. It comes down. Um, It's the whole symbol of the incarnation. The incarnation is the ultimate symbol of the kingdom come. All these people, and then one of them, the divine in the flesh, comes down. And we as Christians, there's like a buzzword pastor is using today. It's called incarnational, right? That's us um, doing everything as if it is an incarnation of God here. So spending your money incarnationally, spending your time incarnationally as Jesus would God in the flesh here in your life, okay? Um, Because we've spent too long distorting the kingdom and declaring, no, we're going to fly away, we're going to disappear from it, and it's all going to crash and burn, and we're going to watch from afar and say, see, that's what they get. That is not the message of Christ. The message of Christ is, if it's broken, we believe in resurrection, and it's going to be fixed. God's going to heal it. We're going to bring it back together. We're not going to throw things away. We're not going to throw people away. People matter. Creation matters. And we're going to work hard to bring the kingdom of God, the goodness of God here, into this thing. Um, and inject the love of God, the grace of God, the kingdom of God into every moment. Um, and here's the thing. The kingdom of God, the way Jesus talks about it is very fascinating. Um, Matthew chapter 8, talks, it says this about the kingdom. It says, many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about people in the past that are part of this kingdom. Way back there, long ways, 1,800 years uh, from, his, from that point. And he's talking about the kingdom there. Um, all, there's a whole bunch of people that are part of it. And then he also, so basically that's, that's back. It's our past. Um, also Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So it's here. It is present. It is accessible to you. And there are people right now in your midst that are a part of the kingdom of God, that are citizens of it. It's not this thing we accomplish and receive just after death. It's a thing now. You can receive now. So this is, it's, it's here. But also, the kingdom is described in Matthew today, 6, 9, and 10. Today's passage, we're praying for it to come. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying for this thing to come into our future. And so past, present, future, chronological kingdom, there are people from every single generation, every tribe, every tongue that are a part of this thing, that are doing the work of God, that are a part of it. Okay, now, when, in the scriptures, when you read kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, they're not two separate things. They're synonymous. Some of the writers of scriptures will use kingdom of God over kingdom of, uh, will use kingdom of heaven because either they're Jewish or they're speaking to a Jewish audience um, and to, to, like, to, to really um, devout Jews, it was offensive to use the name of God. So they say kingdom of heaven instead of God. It's, it's something that is accessible here. It's the same thing, though. So the kingdom of God is described as this thing 
that Moses and Abraham were a part of with you and that Christians in the future will be a part of with you. People from all walks of life are a part of with you and we're working together, but we're in the midst of these other kingdoms, but we exist here and our kingdom um, governs our every move. It should, at least. And in prayer, we declare that it does. And the more we declare this, the more it does. Um, But also, we have this question about, okay, so if it spans all of time, what is the kingdom? What is it? Does Jesus define it? That's a great question. I'm so glad you just asked that. There is, um, so Jesus was, uh, he was was Jewish. Did you know that? He was Jewish. He was a rabbi. He was a Jewish rabbi. Um, Jewish rabbis had a specific way of talking. Jewish rabbis interacted with the Old Testament. They knew how to interact with the Old Testament. They knew how the Old Testament writers wrote. And oftentimes they used their techniques and copy them. There's this thing. We're going to get to the answer. There's this thing called a parallelism in the scriptures. A parallelism is when you write one line and then you write a second line that either defines or is synonymous with the first line. If you read the book of Psalms, which you should be, general audience book, it's good for everyone. You should be reading like a psalm a day. Um, I read a book of Proverbs every day. There's 31 of them. There's about usually 30, 31 days in a month. It's perfect. Uh, And then I read one of the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, you will notice every verse in the Psalms is a parallelism. When you see this, this will change the way you read the Psalms. I promise you. Watch this. Uh, Psalm 4.2. How long will you, how long will you people <laughs> turn my glory into shame? How long will you people turn my glory into shame? Line one. Line two is a parallelism. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? That's what that means. Okay? It's either a definition or it's an ex- explanation or it's a synonym. It's the same. It's, okay? Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. That means I lack nothing. All right. Uh, Psalm 46.1, God is a refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Pick a random place in the Psalms, open up to there, read it. You're either going to see a synonym or an explanation. So when Jesus is giving us the prayer, it goes like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, New Testament scholars and Old Testament scholars alike all agree this is a parallelism. Jesus is defining the kingdom. This is how the kingdom works. The kingdom is centered on the will of God being done. It is centered on um, this world becoming as it is in the realm of heaven, which means heaven is the place where all is as it should be. God rules. God's on the throne, so heaven can be present now. Heaven will be present in the future. Heaven has been present in the past. It is accessible. It's possible to bring heaven here. So when we talk about bringing heaven here, this is what we're talking about. I've never really explained this in full detail, but this is what this is. So, in prayer, we start off here. Let's put it up here. Let's talk about it. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, this is how you can approach God. Full confidence that there's nothing to be done. You are accepted as you are, okay? Even though you're about to confess a whole lot of things, maybe. Even though you're carrying things that maybe you just did. You come to God as a father, open to listen. Hallowed be your name. You understand God is not judging you like these other gods are. God is not furious with you like all your other gods are. He's not making demands of you. He wants to be known. He wants intimacy. He wants you to know who he is. So you're going to come before your father and you're going to realize this father is different. This God is different from anything else in this world. 
And all the things I've heard about this God, all these people using the name of God in this, in all these different ways, don't matter right now. All that matters is, is, is what I see here, Jesus revealed in scriptures. And then you're going to realize that God is a king, has a kingdom, that you are part of that kingdom, and you're going to pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that it would come. And, and this is really important because you're about to talk about your life in the second half. You're about to just kind of lay it all out, how your life is. But before you do that, before you pick all these things and say, here they all are, you need to have a mindset of, it's God's will that matters. There is a way that God is moving in this world. And before you lay all these things out, you need to ponder that and be aware of it. That there's a way that this is supposed to go. Jesus is Lord, not you. Not all these other people that are demanding you get that job that you're about to pray about. There is a will of God. There's a kingdom. And it's far bigger and far more important than anything we bring to the table. And once God is in his proper place, we can have the heart of a disciple and a follower of Jesus and make our requests in a way that is effective and humble and life-giving, really, life-giving. So we're going to take some time and, and, and we're going to take communion. This is a good place to do this. So communion service, go ahead and take the bread and the wine. It's better in the room. Um, and why don't we exercise this for a few minutes? Why don't we take a few minutes Put God in God's place. Even if God has not been in God's place in your life for a very long time, for the next, you know, four minutes or so, put God in God's place. Affirm that he's different. Affirm that he's not like all these other gods that you're, you're chasing around. Look for the ways that you have been chasing around. Audit yourself for a little bit here. Um, and then understand that there is a kingdom that is accessible to you that is found in Christ. Christ is the Lord of this kingdom. Many of us in this room are a part of this kingdom, and we are working to, we want to invite you to join us in this kingdom and be a part of this. And then you respond by taking communion. Come on up and take a piece of bread. Rip it off. Bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. You're going to dip it in the wine. The wine symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for you. This is how um, your wholeness is found. The God pouring himself out so that you can be filled up. It's incredibly symbolic. It's incredibly beautiful. It's a perfect picture of what we're doing here. So let's take some time, and we're going to pray, and we're going to take communion. Um, And then we're going to close by saying the Lord's Prayer communally together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place, for these people. Be with us now. Teach us and remind us regularly how to pray. Remind us of the importance of it. Um, And give us strength through the, the struggle that prayer is. It's a lot of work to align our hearts and our minds towards the things of you. Thank you for this place and the life-giving well that it is to all of us. Thank you for everyone in this room for bringing them here. Um, may we be a, a good, perfect picture of your son, Jesus. And may we learn to follow you more and more. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.